Kia ora and welcome back to Exposure. I'm Sapia Mayron. This is our last episode. If you've been with me since the beginning, nga mehi, thank you. This week we had to go out with a bang, so I asked one of my favourite journalists to talk about how journalism can make its mark on society, the way that Alison plans to do now. 30 years ago, Metro magazine published Sandra Coney's story, An Unfortunate Experiment. In no less than 15,000 words, Sandra and her co-author Philida Bunkle exposed how Professor Herbert Green of National Women's Hospital had been conducting an experiment in secret on women to prove his theory on cervical cancer. He was wrong, and dozens of women died preventable deaths. This feature and heavy lobbying led to the Cartwright Inquiry, which was a watershed moment for patient rights, and in particular for women. The ripple effects of this story go far and wide, which makes Sandra the perfect person to answer my question, how can journalism change the world? I mean, you really left a legacy in terms of journalism making a dent. Your story resulted in a national inquiry that basically started weeks after you went to print, if not days. And now there's a national cervical screening program, which I know I benefit from. How do you think that happens? How I guess my my main question is, like, how do journalists tell stories that change the world or at least change their country? I think the story itself in Metro was only the first step. And I would emphasise that to anybody who's embarking on this, you know, doing an expose through the media. You can't give up on it. You can't let it go. You have to follow it through because the system has a way of closing in over uncomfortable truths. It needs people who are completely committed that will not allow that to happen. So it wasn't automatic that there was an inquiry after that magazine article appeared happened also because of lobbying for from ourselves and from a number of well-placed people in the health sector who could verify to the Minister of Health what had happened. And then with the inquiry itself, we found to our <laughs> surprise and a small degree of horror that we would have to really stay involved in it to make sure that woman's voice was heard really clearly through the inquiry. Otherwise, it was distinctly possible that the people who had the stakeholders who had an interest in the outcome, like the university, the medical profession, um, and the hospitals, it could have come out quite differently if we, one, hadn't stayed involved, but two, encouraged a lot of women to um, step up and also tell their story so that we were making clear this wasn't just something that was passed, but actually was part of a continuing culture within the health sector. You know, the right outcome won't necessarily appear by magic, would be my message. And do you see there being that potential in the in the stuff investigation that the people well, involved will see it through? Yeah, I think there's anything that is exposed through the media has to be followed up, if it because the only way that you will bring about real change is by going through the formal structures and that might mean a court and it might mean legal action and it might mean uh, inquiries, it might mean the Human Rights Commission and all that sort of thing. And so it'll it'll have to, to actually cement in some change. The people who are involved in it will have to be prepared to sort of be in for the long haul. Do you see there being any like resourcing issues there? Were you have you had to kind yes, of fund absolutely. your involvement this whole way? <laughs> <laughs> well, at the time in particular, when it kind of overtook our lives, 
we were very lucky that we were supported by a lot of unions, um, by a lot of women's organisations, and there was a, and some women stepped forward and said, "You forget about the fundraising, and we'll go out and raise the funds." And they went and shoulder tapped people and women's organisations, and we got donations from all over the country through things like the nurses' union and different unions that employed women that are actually fundraised through their members and we would get these sort of checks for $69 that would appear from some remote place in the South Island. So, yes, it was an issue and it was solved by the public donating money that enabled us to keep doing that. And then when it came to being legally represented at the inquiry, the Ministry of Health, because we were playing such a key role, did pay our legal bills. Wow. That's incredible. Well, I think the judge at the inquiry um, said to the ministry that that our role was vital there because we were representing women and um, we were often asking the hard questions. So a combination of less strong unions and higher legal fees, what do you think might happen as a result of these investigations coming out? Well, I out? don't want to be discouraging. Oh, oh. It's... it's um, <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of women would support it if they were asked to, whatever, and they probably at this stage don't know what is the next step. We got a couple of grants from also from charitable organisations that supported what we were doing, and that was really helpful. But, um, yeah, it, it can kind of become all-consuming if it's something big, and this is something big because these are all the hidden stories. And I mean, ours was one hospital, although it did look at what was happening in other places, but... When you think about the sort of widespread nature of where sexual harassment can be going on and the organisations and firms that might be caught up in it, it's, it's big. It is. It's huge. You published one main big feature, like a meaty, meaty yeah. piece, and got everything out in one go. Um we live in an era of social media and 24-hour news cycles and things like that. Do you see that there might be a bit of a difference in how this could play out in the media? Yes. I mean, it's, we, we took two years to get it to the point where we put it out there. In fact, you know, we were working on it for a long time. But as you say, we had kind of wrapped the whole things up and tried to dot the I's and cross the T's. There were more things that came out. You know, I think you're, you're quite right to point out that there was a sort of like one big whammy um, expose, whereas with this, it could, there's a certain amount in the media, if you watch it these days, that people, things sort of die from inertia and people get sick of things and they move on to the next things very quickly. So they'll have to have some strategies for how they deal with that. So two, two years from start to finish in terms of publishing the story? Um, I've actually doing the research and everything, um, at least two years. I think it was probably more than that, but it was, once we actually started writing and putting it together, yep, and going out and interviewing people, we, we'd been sort of onto it for quite a long time because we kind of knew a bit what the story was, but we, there were certain things that needed to fall into place before we could go public, and it was really some kind of coincidental things that because I was working in a women's health organisation, I was approached by the woman, who became, Claire Madison, who became Ruth, in the Metro story. And once we saw her medical records, everything fell into place. And then, But we still had to go out and interview people. Like we interviewed Professor Green. We interviewed 
Professor Bonham. We interviewed everybody, lots of people. So, yes, it took a while. Did all the changes that you fought for remain then? Gradually, over time, some things have been weakened that we fought for because the medical profession is powerful and well-resourced and into the very long haul. You know, government departments, although we stayed involved and so did other women's organisations, you know, we were unresourced or fairly poorly resourced organisations up against government department and powerful interests. So there have been things where there's been slippage. However, the major message of the Cartwright Inquiry around informed consent and the relationship between women and their healthcare providers, I think is very cemented in in New Zealand. Women and the public in general has expectations of how they will be treated and it's stayed well in place. For a young journalist like me, (laughs) uh, looking at a looking at a story like yours that was published in 87 and still is making waves through New Zealand is really, really inspiring. And I really hope that that the Me Too investigation does the same thing. And as you say, it's so, so, so much work. What do you think journalists need in order to do that work? Uh, I think you need a lot of integrity and commitment. And, and I have to say, don't believe that you're going to get thanked for it. You know, I became fairly untouchable as a journalist after writing that piece. So the work did not come my way. Yes, I did, you know, I did work after that and I was also um, writing a regular column for the Sunday Star Times, which I did for quite some time. But New Zealand's a small country, so it's it's actually quite hard to wear that kind of notoriety, I guess I'd call it. And And especially if you've been a kind of like a campaigning journalist, so you've had a position, and especially if it's anything to do with women, it will be seen as a position not kind of like the truth or the mainstream or anything, but you will be a bit out there and a bit marginalised because it's about women. That Probably you could get away with it more in a larger country, but it's actually quite hard in New Zealand where you know there aren't huge numbers of media opportunities and journalism's a pretty hard row to hoe at the best of times these days and the way it's changed. Like when we were doing that, it was not uncommon to have sort of large investigative pieces. And and the fact that we even had a publication that would give that kind of space, you'd be hard pushed to um I've said this. I think it would be really hard to publish that article now because I'm not sure who would give you the space to publish it. So I think things have deteriorated from the point of view of journalists and doing that kind of work. Well, it's really kind of grounding to hear that from you, I think. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time, Sandra. (laughs) Okay, then. Well, good luck with it. Thank you very much. That was Sandra Coney. Like she said, real change comes with real work. Ever since her story was published in June 1987, it's affected Sandra's life on a daily basis because of the ongoing effort required to get justice for Professor Green's victims, but also to ensure safe medical practices for everyone. If you're on the edge of your seat waiting for Ali and her team to publish something already, hang in there. Sandra worked up to publishing for two years, remember? Should this become a watershed moment in exposing sexual harassment as it looks to be, we're going to have to be patient, and we're going to have to work really, really hard. Exposure is written and produced by me, Sophia Mayron. 
Our music is by Ingrid Saker, and our artwork is photography by Brittany Cosgrove. Please leave a rating or a review on iTunes, Podcast Addict, or Stitcher. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.